Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back. So, to start things off, uh, a couple things I want to address before we get started with this podcast. Um, First of all, I want to thank everybody for your support and um, kind words, words of encouragement, how gracious people were. Um, You know, it just amazes me that people actually think I'm brave for telling this story. And, you know, the funny thing is I don't really feel brave. I feel more obligated. But the other thing is I I have this little anxiety attack when I when I did this and I might do that again. I don't know. Um, So anyway, I do want to thank everybody for that. And um, just to let you know, you can financially support this podcast. you get to choose the amount that you want to do it. And, and if you decide to do that, I want to thank you in advance. It does help me, um, grow this podcast and upgrade and things that I need to do to improve the quality. But also, um, an important note here because of the dynamics of, uh, domestic violence and finances and how that all plays into it. I do want to let you know that Nobody is obligated to pay for a subscription or whatever the situation. I don't even know. You know, I'm so new at this. But I do know that finances are one of the things that abusers use to control somebody. So please, if this puts you at any kind of risk, don't feel obligated. Um, don't take that chance. Um, you know, it's just something that I have to I have to put out there. The other thing that I wanted to... Um, put out there before we get started is that if you or someone you know is in a situation that involves domestic violence, um, I I can't help you with your local because I don't know where you are, but there is a national abuse hotline and that number is 800-799-SAFE, SAFE. And I also have the number in the description of the podcast. So, you know, you can call that number and get some help and they can advise you on what to do next and how to make a safe plan. So I want to talk today about um, isolation and how that plays into things and how my own personal uh, isolation and my resistance against it as well um, comes into play. And, you know, it occurred to me when, when you're a when you're a baby, a newborn baby, you're basically born into isolation. You know, you're obviously very completely dependent upon your, your parents and your caregiver to, to take care of you. And, um, you know, it stays that way. And as a child, and even when you read about, or you hear about these really heinous situations where somebody's done something to a child, And the neighbors say, well, we never even knew there was a child in the house. Well, you know, that's very possible. It's not that hard with a a child to isolate them. You just don't let them go out of the house. You make them be quiet, you know. And um, another really big case, it's kind of old news now, but was the Ariel Castro in Cleveland who kidnapped the three women. Um, I believe their names was Amanda Berry, Michelle Knight, and Gina de Jesus, he kidnapped them, took them into his house, and nobody ever knew they were there for 10 years. He had the house 
set up in a way that if they made any noise, nobody could hear them. Uh, you know, the windows, he had the windows barricaded and various things that he did, uh, aside from putting, you know, a tremendous amount of fear into these women. Um, nobody knew these women were in that house. And so he could do whatever he wanted at his leisure, you know, and um, that's how he got away with that for so long. Just nobody even knew about it. And so, you know, that's kind of the beginning with me. Um, obviously not as extreme as that because I did go to school. Um, but, you know, my family, my parents didn't have people all over over all the time you know they weren't into big cocktail parties that were popular in the 60s and 70s they didn't have friends stopping by for coffee Uh, our daily life consisted of my parents going to work we went to the babysitter which um, now thinking back about it probably wasn't an ideal situation either Um, we went to a house that was a couple houses down from where we lived and even when we moved my parents took us back there and we were basically a you know a handful of kids that were outside in the yard all day long I mean even even lunch we ate lunch outside you know the only time we came in the house was maybe for you know to use the bathroom um I remember a couple times and it was probably just extremely extremely hot on those days we could come in and watch um speed racer or ultraman i hated those shows you know they were really i guess more geared towards um the grandson that was living there but anyway you know they didn't do a lot to take care of the kids other than keep us at their house and keep us fed you know um and then after work my parents would come and get us we'd go home we've had dinner we'd go to bed and it would start over the next day and if there was any social things that happened it was all with family now my father there was more of my father's family especially when I was younger in the area where I lived than my mother's eventually some people from my mother's family moved into the area um but you know it was just family so I had my cousins and aunts and uncles that saw me but you know there weren't I didn't have friends I just didn't have friends and I eventually made friends when I went to elementary school but you know it was hard for me even now it's hard for me in some ways to make friends because I didn't have early opportunities I think and just a lot of other insecurities that I have but I guess my point was that you know being isolated and being able to for my mother to to do what she was doing was easy for her in the beginning and you know the first time that the first time that I had a glimpse that maybe something was wrong I was probably about seven or eight years old and I was in the bathroom at school and a friend of mine or a girl I say girl in my class she really wasn't a friend but I knew her and she knew who I was and I she was probably not in my actual classroom but in my grade um, because I don't think they would have let two people go to the bathroom at the same time she I ran into her in the bathroom and she asked me about a bruise how'd you get that bruise and I said well my mother punched me and her response was what struck me as odd she's you know she was like your mother punched you like she was surprised 
And I, she, I don't remember the whole conversation, but she probably asked me like, well, what did you do? You know, or something like that. And I told her, which for the life of me, I can't remember what it was. But, you know, then we finished what we were doing in there and went back to class. And, you know, it was a thing where I didn't, I didn't know that it was not normal for your mom to beat you into oblivion or punch you. You know, I thought that was normal. And, and I was told that that was normal or that's what I deserved. You know, I was a bad kid. I was, you know, a pain in her ass. I'm sorry. I hate to cuss, you know, but sometimes you have to, to explain things. So, you know, those were the messages that I got. I was not a blessing to my mother and that, you know, I was a problem for her. And so to me, it was normal, you know, um, later on, as I got older, you know, people would start talking about when they got in trouble and, things that were done to them and at the same time there was a social awareness starting and you know it was new I want to say it was new not that child abuse was new because obviously it's been going on for you know since people have been having children but um, people were just starting in the 70s to talk about child abuse and domestic violence and there was a case and eventually there was a movie with Farrah Fawcett with the burning bed you know that was a big deal when that movie came out about a woman who was being abused by her husband and she basically killed him by setting him in the house on fire and you know and she was actually acquitted where um so it was like a landmark case I, I off the top of my head right now I can't think of a landmark case for child abuse but you know people were starting to become aware and it was a slow process you know uh, my my speculation I'll just put it that way is that you know we started talking as a society about how we treat children and how we raise children and what they learn from the messages that we give to them as parents um, but the resources were were limited and what was available was limited and the understanding of it and the dynamics of how it affects the child and the household and the adult child those things were all just starting to be studied so you know in my case it it was there just wasn't a lot available you didn't hear about it all the time and um you know having been raised in a home where there wasn't a lot of social activities other than holidays and anniversaries and things like that. And even anniversaries were kind of low keyed. Um, birthday parties were here and there. Sometimes we had a party. A lot of times we didn't for not just my immediate family, but extended family. Um, weddings and funerals, you know, there just wasn't, it wasn't a big you know, social Mecca where I lived. And so, um, there was also other dynamics that came into play. So, you know, remember my parents were born in the late thirties and early forties and church was really important and social norms were really important and things like think, you know, people didn't get divorced as frequently as they do now 
you heard about celebrities getting divorced and it was scandalous and if you knew somebody in your neighborhood who was divorced particularly a woman you know it was unusual people stayed married regardless of the circumstances and and that's what I think a lot of the dynamics in our household in my father's position of course he didn't talk about these things but um, I think that's why he stayed with my mother um, you know until he died because he took his marriage vows seriously, but um, there was a, a question that was asked of him when um, the social services person came that I had mentioned in the first one. Um, you know, what? Did, how does he play into it? And you know, his response was, "Well, he was at work." And you know, that sounds like a lame excuse, but the truth of the matter is, most of these beatings did happen while he was at at work and by the time he got home you know somebody might be sniffing and my mom might be stomping around but the actual violence had had stopped um so he wasn't there to actually witness it and step in and it was kind of after the fact you know and so what was he supposed to do um given the resources that were available his personal morals and then I was asked about it one time, too, why I wasn't angry with my father. And there's a couple reasons for that. And one is because if there was something going on and my parents were trying to do something, like they were in a store or something, shopping, say Christmas shopping or whatever, my mom would take my sister and my father always took me. Um, You know, and that way they only had one child to look after while they were out. And so my father and I were very close. My father was the the stability in my life. He was the one um, calm thing that I had that I could be somewhat relaxed and not have to feel like I'm walking on eggshells. But the other, the other, the other, um, the other thing. I think my father was abused. I know he was abused. My mother um, would berate him in public even. You know, she would just call him vicious, vicious names. And, um, you know, I can remember waking up in the middle of the night and there would be screaming and yelling and I could hear dishes breaking. And my mother would be in one of her rages at him and she'd start taking the dishes out of the cupboard and throwing them at him, you know. And then we would wake up and, of course, we're upset and crying and they're telling us to go back in the bedroom, don't walk in the kitchen, of course, because there's glass everywhere. And, um, you know, somehow that argument would end and my father would be the person sweeping up the glass so that nobody got hurt, you know. But... She really, she didn't hold back in public. If she wanted to call him a name, she just did. She humiliated him constantly, you know, and he never said anything back. He never lifted a hand to her. There was one incident. I, you know, I didn't completely see it, but I heard about it, you know, because of course everybody had to know what was going on he must have restrained her like she was throwing things around again and he must have restrained her and she says he broke her her back which knowing you know like I said I wasn't there I didn't see it but I know what I went through myself later on when I started talking about it and things started coming out and she couldn't really hide it anymore she had this knack for 
um, twisting it around. It was never her fault. It was always somebody else's fault. So if, if she got hurt because she was out of control and somebody tried to control her physically, you know, it, it was it was their fault, not hers. You know, even though she was being very vicious. So um, moving on or staying in line with this isolation thing, when I married the husband that abused me, we kind of had the same um, family dynamic as far as being social. We, we did have some friends, but we didn't have a lot of people over. And, you know, there's, he, I had lifelong friends and, um, I would have my friend over, I would talk to her on the phone. Um, and I would go to her house and, you know, but very, very rarely did one of my husband's friends come over if they did it would be like just to for a minute or two while we were getting ready to go somewhere else or getting ready for work or something like that but they didn't just come and hang out at our house people did not do that um the people that were allowed to be in our house for any extended period of time would be family um so you know that same kind of dynamic the people who were closest to us were the people that we were most intimately involved with you know or related to really we were related and um so, you know, it was just so strange. Like, I worked in um, a small town. I had a little business, and we had moved away kind of out of our area. We, you could drive there, but it was a bit of a drive. You know, so I spent a lot of time on the phone with my, my girlfriend. And, um, you know, just he didn't like it. He didn't like it that I was on the phone for you know, more than just a couple minutes talking to somebody, having a conversation. And, um, you know, it would always be at night. So the kids would be in bed. It wasn't like I had to watch the kids, you know, it's just that I wasn't giving him my undivided attention. I do apologize for the background noise. I'm sorry. I don't have a professional studio. Um, I'm trying to keep as much of that out of it, but if you hear the birds or you hear the cicadas and there was a truck that just went by, I apologize. But, you know, like I would, I would talk on the phone with her and I would try to go into another room so I wouldn't disturb him if he was watching TV. So, of course, he couldn't hear now what was going on and he'd want a, a, he wanted to know what we talked about. And we might have talked for an hour or two, you know. And so I'd tell him and it would only take me a couple minutes to tell him. He's like, you talked for two hours and that's all you talked about? Like, I don't know, it's just so weird. Like, I felt like, what do you want, a transcript? I mean, you know, but the isolation is... Um, in my case, it was subtle. You know, if I was going somewhere, he'd, he'd want to know where I went and who did I talk to and, you know, um, why was it, why did it take me so long, you know, and things, a lot of, you know what it's like when you go to the store, sometimes the, there's a lot of traffic or you have to stand in line or, what you know, just different things. I mean, it was just so crazy, but, um, the, keeping you out of the eye of the public really is the first defense that the abuser has to keep their control over you. If people can't see what's going on, they don't know. And that, you know, I think is a really big flag for those of us who maybe have somebody that we care about that might be in a bad situation, you know, just kind of try to see how it is when you talk to them. Are they always 
you know, cutting a conversation short do, you know, they have excuses why they can't come to your house or why you can't go to their house or they can't do certain things that you used to do all the time, you know, what kind of patterns have changed and just keep an eye open because that's a flag and they may be in a situation where they don't even realize. I'll give you another example. My good friend that I was just talking about that I have known my whole life, she met a guy and um, I had a bad feeling about him right away. I really did. And she had just met him and I got this terrible feeling, you know, had just met him. And I mean, I just met him and I can't exactly remember what it was that gave me this creepy feeling. And I was in the middle of my own domestic situation. Um, hadn't gotten out of it yet, but I looked at her sitting in the chair. It was just like a little paused moment and whatever we were doing, she was sitting there and she had this look on her face that I have never seen before or after where she felt she looked like sad as it is looking back she she looked so peaceful and she looked so content and so happy it's the happiest I have ever seen her in my life and I've known her since I was nine years old so anyway um she was with this guy for a couple months and they ended up moving out of state she moved down south to where his family was and she was down here for well I'm down south now but anyway um she was down there for a couple months and we would talk on the phone periodically but not as often as we normally would have and then very suddenly she came back and she told me that he had beaten her so badly and her mother somehow got her out of there and when she came back it took her a good two weeks before she would even let me see her and when she did she looked so bad he'd beaten her really really bad I mean just messed her up but you know he took her out of state so that he could do the things that he did to her and um, she had asked me after the fact when we were talking about it and I told her what I felt she asked me why I didn't say anything and I told her about the way what I saw when I looked at her and I just knew that she wasn't going to be receptive to it. I don't know if I was right or wrong. I, you know, on one aspect, I could have been wrong and I might have damaged my relationship with her. But on the other aspect, she knew what I was saying was true, that she wasn't ready to accept that, that I was, you know, she would have interpreted it as me just being mean to her boyfriend. So that's another thing to take into account when you're trying to help somebody who you suspect is in a dangerous situation. They may not be ready to give up yet. Well, it's not really giving up. To change. To change and and they might not see it. You know, they might still have hope. They might not be ready to accept your concern. Um, But that doesn't mean give up. You know, I didn't give up on her. I still loved her. And I was there for her when she came back. And, um, you know, she survived, thank God. And thank God her family was able to intervene and help her. Um, So those are just my thoughts on that. There's probably a whole lot more to talk about isolation. Um, But 
you know, there's a fine line sometimes between respecting somebody's privacy and realizing that they might need you to intercede because they can't. And when it comes to children, you know, we have this love-hate relationship with social services, but it's always better to err on the side of caution. If um, you think something's happening to a child and you report it and it's unfounded, that's great. You know, and maybe somebody's going to get mad at you for reporting if you, you know, if they figure out it's you. But I'd rather have somebody get mad at me for doing what I thought was the right thing than to maybe risk um, not doing anything at all and having something horrible happen. Anyway, um, that's it for today. I do appreciate your listening. I hope that this has been helpful. Please remember to um, keep yourself safe and I will talk to you again. God bless. Bye-bye. each and every one of you who return to listen to these podcasts and welcome those of you who are new to these pod to listening to my podcast um before I begin I just have a personal statement to make and that is you know I, I feel bad enough for children who are being abused um but when I come across these stories where a child was taken from their parent because a parent was not taking care of them properly or abusing them. And they go into hand the hands of somebody else and it's just even worse for them than it was. I mean, I just, these kids, it's like they never had anything good in their life. So, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, I don't have COVID, I promise. Um, Jeffrey Baldwin, this is who we're going to talk about today. And just... Before we, we get started, if you are sensitive to um, s- stories about children being abused or violence, then this probably isn't a good podcast for you, and I would advise you not to listen any further. But little Jeffrey Baldwin, he was born January 20th, 1997, and he passed away on November 30th, 2002. He was a Canadian child whose death was from septic shock after years of mistreatment by his grandparents Elva Bateneau and Norman Kidman and led to significant changes in policy by the Children's Aid Societies in granting custody of children to relatives. So he was born in the doctor's hospital which is now part of Toronto Western Hospital in Toronto the son of Yvonne Kidman and Richard Baldwin on April 28, 1980 98, he and his older sister were taken by Catholic Children's Aid Society after allegations of abuse were leveled against his parents. They were given into the custody of the maternal grandparents, Elva Bateneau and Norman Kidman. In 2000, a worker with the Catholic Children's Aid Society noticed a bruise under Jeffrey's eye, but it was dismissed as an accident and no action was taken. According to later court testimony, Jeffrey and his sister were kept in a locked room at night with a furnace vents shut 
And if you don't know, Canada can get very, very cold. And um, when they were released, they were forced to eat with their hands on a mat on the floor. James Mills, the boyfriend of Jeffrey's aunt, who also Jeffrey's aunt, who also lived in the house, declared that Jeffrey's grandmother did not love him or his sister, and that they were purely a dollar and cents matter, as his grandparents received social assistance for their care. Now I'm just wondering why it is that James never came forth either, but I don't know. There's no answers on that one. So. On the evening of November 30th, 2002, the grandparents called 911 to report that Jeffrey was no longer breathing. Upon arrival, emergency workers noticed that his body was covered in sores, bruises, and abrasions. And his weight was slightly less than his weight on his first birthday, almost five years earlier. On March of 2003, the grandparents were arrested and charged with <clears throat> Sorry, oh my goodness. Second degree murder for their role in his death. The court declared that they had kept Jeffrey locked in a bedroom where he lived in his own feces and left him to drink from a toilet. The judge was told that the pair used the children as a source of income, collecting government support checks while offering very little in return. On April 7th, 2006, they were convicted of second degree murder by Justice David Watt in the Superior, uh, Ontario Superior Court of Justice. Sentencing was delivered on June 9, 2006. Botno was sentenced to 22 years imprisonment until 2028 and Kidman 20 years until 2026 before they respectively become eligible for parole. On November 22nd in 2013, Todd Boyce, a fellow Canadian unrelated to Jeffrey Baldwin, started a $25,000 crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo over two months to erect a bronze statue in Greenwood Park, Toronto, depicting Jeffrey dressed as Superman, a superhero that he loved. Over $36,000 was raised, and in July 14, DC Comets denied permission to use the S in the Superman logo on the statue. However, the decision was later re reversed and the use of the logo was allowed, and the statue was unveiled in the park on October 18th, 2014. And he is not the only deceased child from the hands of an abuser that has a statue or some sort of memorial erected. Um, Sylvia Likens as well has uh, some type of a memorial erected for her. Uh, this is in Indiana, and I'm trying to cover that case, but it is so extensive that you know the information is it's a lot and so getting it into a a manageable podcast I haven't been able to accomplish yet but I really want to cover that case <coughs> oh my god have you ever heard anybody cough so much so like I said at the beginning of the podcast I, I just I feel twice as bad I guess you could say for these children that you know they had it bad to start with and then it just gets worse, and I and I, I just I don't understand how this happens. Um, but in this particular case, now granted, it's in Canada. I live in the United States, but I do know that here, um, when a child needs to be removed from the home, they do try to keep the children in, um, you know, another family member member's care if it's at all possible. But I think there is something to be said. 
especially in a case where you're going from, say, a parent to a grandparent, um, if the parent is negligent or abusive, uh, I, I really do think that there needs to be some sort of background check or extensive screening, some kind of precautions taken, because we, we know that in cases of abuse that it is cyclical within families and that parents who abuse their children are often abused by their parents. Um, so uh, this is something to think about in, in, our, in all of our societies, no matter what country you're living in, if you have a country that um, recognizes child abuse, which not all countries, believe it or not, do, um, that, you know, they, they do more thorough screening of whoever the child is going to go live with, regardless of the relationship to the child. Um, <clears throat> good grief. I'm so sorry. I do apologize for all the coughing. Um, I do want to leave people with a final thought in that, you know, if you see something, say something. You've heard that before. We all have. And in cases of child abuse, it's so much better to report a suspe suspected abuse and be wrong than to turn the other way and have it be something that's actually happening. I don't really have a happy note to end this on. I do apologize, I feel, for this little boy. But I do want to remind everybody to stay safe, and I will see you again. Bye-bye.